I'm Sangeeta Pillai and this is the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original where we talk about all those things that we're not supposed to talk about as South Asian women. Sex, sexuality, periods, menopause, mental health, nipple hair, shame and many more taboos. When you're diagnosed, you you think, okay, you've got to go through chemo, chemotherapy, and you have no idea what it is. It's time we heard the voices of real South Asian women, not just those we see in Bollywood or in mainstream Western media. It's time we had a real voice, a loud and proud and strong voice. You know, in Indian culture, you have your head shaved. And my dad gave me this nickname, Tux which is short for Taklu, which is bald. I've invited some incredible women to sit at my kitchen table, drink chai and put the world to rights. In this episode of Masala Podcast, I speak to Sushmita Bhattacharya. She's an award-winning author with many books to her credit. Her debut novel, The Normal State of Mind, was long-listed for the Mumbai Film Festival Prize, Word to Screen. Her short story collection, Table Manners, won the Saboteur Award in 2019. She also teaches creative writing at universities and to young people in the community and has judged many short story competitions. I spoke to Sushmita over chai at her kitchen table while eating the most delicious food that she'd cooked for me. We spoke about her life, her work and what I found the most inspiring, her journey through cancer. A heads up before we start. In this episode, we're talking about cancer and its impact. If you think that's going to be upsetting for you, please feel free to skip this episode. Should we start, Sushmita? Tell me a little bit about your early life. Where did you grow up? I was born in Mumbai and I grew up there. I studied in Mumbai and generally I was there until I got married and like a nice Indian bride. I left my home and went to Kolkata. Not for very long because my husband was in the Merchant Navy. So uh, I sailed with him for about three years on oil tankers. Oil tankers? Yeah. Actual oil tankers? Actual oil tankers, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That is an adventure and a half. I think on your website, you talk about Mumbai and some of the things really resonated with me because I grew up in Mumbai as well. So you talk about batata vadas, mm-hmm. which are these like little spicy potato balls that's served between bread. It's delicious. My mouth's watering as I'm talking <laughs> about it. And you talk about the lady special train, yeah. which I used to take as well when I went to work. So if you lived in the suburbs, you went into work, you took that particular train, which was full of women. Yeah. It was brilliant. It was like this atmosphere of like a party. So people would bring, I don't know, samosas and... People yeah, selling yeah. things and bangles and saris that you could buy on the train. It was brilliant. It really struck yeah, me. But they were very fierce as well. Oh, you God, yeah. Mess about you couldn't mess station. with them. Yeah. <laughs> what took you from the oil tankers to the UK? So, again, I followed my husband's footsteps and he, he decided enough was enough. Once he became a captain, uh, we thought that this kind of lifestyle wasn't the best to start a family and he took up a shore job and we went to Singapore where he decided that he didn't really like that kind of um, corporate job 
and he got an opportunity to do a PhD in in Cardiff University. So that's how we came to the UK. And yeah, we've been here ever since. It's been 15 years now. And in this time, you've written your first novel, your debut novel. And I believe one of your big fans is Mr. Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I know, I was so shocked to see that. It was on Twitter, one of my writer friends um, messaged me, uh, have you seen this? And it was so funny because it was in the Daily Mail. So obviously I hadn't seen it. And she was very clear to mention, it's not my copy. I just found it lying on the That's table <laughs> in a coffee shop. So, so yeah, it was... Um, what I think, did he say about the book? Um, he said it was... Uh, he. Uh, well, Daily Mail has kind of reported it back. So he's reading a book about a Hindu lesbian, which is, <laughs> you know, lesbian. ridiculous. But it, it is not meant to be, uh, you know, about Hinduism or anything. So so they they wanted to talk about Mr. Corbyn's choice as being that. but But he said that he really enjoyed the book. That's so that was fabulous. great. That's yeah. really nice. While writing the books... There was a big event in your life, wasn't there? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so I finished writing the book. Uh, it took me eight years to write it. And then finally, um, it was um, accepted by Parthian. But between actually submitting, so while I was editing it, I got diagnosed uh, with de breast cancer and and. You know, at that second, I thought, oh, my goodness, after working so hard on getting this book finished, am I not going to see the end result? And and that really, um, yeah, that was very disappointing, I think, for me, out of the, all the other, you know, thoughts that that I kind of experienced at that time. Do you remember when you first heard about it or when you were first diagnosed? Yeah, it's it's kind of very strange the way it happened because before the symptoms, uh, you know, before I noticed anything that was physically wrong with me, uh, it, there, there was a mental, um, something is not right. And that went back to, I was diagnosed in August 2014, but that year in April, I was in India and I and I just thought that I need to get a mammogram done because I don't feel something is right with me and there were no symptoms. So I went to the hospital and, you know, in India, you have these women special health uh, tests or whatever. And I said, I want a mammogram. And they said, well, you're not 40, so you can't have one. And it, I felt really strange. And I said, well, why isn't it in the package? I'm going to be 40 in a few months time. And they said, no. And uh, the doctor checked, you know, my breasts and they said everything was fine. So I came back to the UK still feeling that something is really not right. And, and then one day uh, there was this symptom. So I, I started reading about it and then it says that your breast kind of, you know, it's not always a lump. So I didn't have a lump. And uh, it said that your breast could 
change size. And again, for me, that had happened with breastfeeding. Every time I breastfed, there was a change in the size of my breast. So I thought, well, uh, you know, and it came back to normal. But I wasn't breastfeeding and there was a change. So, and I thought, uh, well, this doesn't look right because the nipple had sunk in. And so I looked that up and I thought, well, I need to go and see somebody. And it was really, you know, great that the GP I saw said, well, I can't find any lumps, but uh, I'm I'm a bit worried about this and let's get you checked. And, and that's how the whole thing kind of started. That must have been a massive kind of shock change, you know, that I, I wouldn't even know how to start processing something like that. What what was that like? I think it was just a big blank because the first time I, when I went for the biopsy and, you know, the scan, so they don't tell you at that moment that you have cancer, though you can see um, the deposits and you can see that it's not right. They will not say it until you you meet the oncologist and then they will tell you. But they were really... Um, good to me and 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 that was I was like oh they're being nice to me so that isn't good news and um, so it, it, it takes about a week or a couple of weeks before you actually get your results and I was teaching at the time and I went to work every day and uh, just completely drew a blank and and I thought well I'm not going to think about it and I didn't tell my husband because he was uh, in India. He had gone on work and I thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, make him worry about something that could not, ha- you know, it may not be that. So for two weeks, I just kept it to myself, which was hard to function. And then um, I went to see the doctor again on my own. I didn't want anybody there with me. Uh, my husband wasn't there anyway. And um, they said that you've got breast cancer. And and that was fine. You know, that didn't phase me. What phased me, what really affected me was, and you have a nurse who comes and sits with you. And, and then they start asking you questions, your age, your thing and whatever. And then they asked me how many children I had, and how old they were. And when they asked me that that's when it hit me they were like three and seven and that's when I thought oh my goodness am I not going to see them grow up and the whole kind of the the weight of this you know diagnosis hit me then and I just started to cry and uh, when I came out of that room I just sat down and for I think a whole a second, a couple of seconds, um, my mind just blacked out. And I think I blacked out because everything went dark. And I just sat there, um, still not quite processing what had happened. And when I went down um, to the lobby of the hospital, I kind of met the radiologist who had done the scans. And it was really lovely of her. She just held my hand and she said, I think you need to sit down and have a cup of tea before you leave 
don't just go. And I thought, yeah, maybe I just need to gather all my thoughts together because I didn't know what I was going to say to my family. So, yeah, I think those, you know, interactions with people helped. Absolutely. And how did you go from there? Then you obviously told your family and the treatment started. How did that affect life? They were all in, I think, different steps that we, uh, so my husband came back and then, and we talked about, uh, I had to have a mastectomy done. So this was all in August and September was my 40th birthday. And I had thought of all these exciting things that I'm going to do, but they said, well, uh, you're going to have your surgery. We have a date, which is three days before my birthday. Three days before your 40th birthday. Yes. So my husband was very positive about it and he said, well, think of, about it as your birthday gift that you're you know getting rid of something that is harmful for you and you're going to get a new life so don't take it in a negative way and you're celebrating your 40th birthday the right way and it was a beautiful 40th birthday because 4th September I had my mastectomy 7th September was my birthday my friends came around with the cake and uh, my kids put up these balloons and my mum was visiting at the time so she was there as well and and we had um, a little party in the morning me with my big drain you know uh, still uh, holding my little bag which um, there is a, a breast cancer support group in Plymouth uh, who's, who make these drain bags and supply them to the hospital so I had my little drain, what drain bag drain bag? So once you've had a surgery, uh, all the fluid right. that's in your body has to be drained out. So you're still got, uh, you know, lines stuck up inside your body. And then you have to have that drain emptied. Um, so my husband said, well, um, we have a lunch uh, let's go out. And, and then he took us to this really fancy French restaurant. And we had an amazing lunch and a walk. And it was a beautiful sunny day. And and I thought, well, um, this isn't going to phase us in any way. Because, you know, I'm still here. And I can enjoy life. And uh, yeah, me and my little drain bag and the whole family went out for lunch. And and it was still early days. I think one of the things that we get scared of is when you are diagnosed, you you think, okay, you've got to go through chemo, chemotherapy, and you have no idea what it is. And that is the scary part, the unknown. So I was terrified that I'm going to have to have chemotherapy. Um, what's it going to do to me and uh, reading books on cancer I think that was not a good idea because everybody's experience is a different one so if somebody's gone through um, chemotherapy and has had a lot of bad reactions and you know side effects it may not be the same for you so to work yourself up to thinking that this is what I'm going to go through you're already making up your mind that uh, it's going to be horrible, but I think you should try and listen to your own body. And what I realized was that a lot of the side effects were the same as what I had gone through pregnancy. So, you know, 
it wasn't new. There were lots of new side effects, but it wasn't anything that I couldn't cope with. I love what you've just said there. It is kind of not deciding what is going to happen. Mm. And it is also, I love your description of the lunch and I think the choice to live and live well and in as much as with as much joy with the people mm. who love you, I think. Yeah. And with life, with the way we are now in the world, the way we are, this we are so anxious so much of the time. The news, the world, mm. everything makes us anxious and we're in this little bubble of anxiety. And I yeah. think sometimes even listening to you talk, it brings to mind what is important, mm. what is actually important, what is the most vital thing in our lives. It's, it's our life, our health, it's the people who love us. Absolutely, right? yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And the world exists. Of course it does. We live in the world. But I think we must, this is so as much a note to myself as anybody else, that find ways to sort of look at what's important, I think, and find ways to create a little bit of a barrier maybe between us and what's happening sometimes. Absolutely. I yeah. Think. There are so many things we love talking about as South Asians. Our massive weddings our fabulous food, our colourful festivals. But there are so many things that we don't ever talk about, like cancer or any big illness for that matter. We surround cancer in silence. We pretend it's not happening. We keep it hidden within our families. It's almost as if this big illness is a shameful secret that we don't want anyone finding out about as if somehow that would make us look weak. When in fact, those who battle cancer are so much stronger. I've read about women undergoing chemotherapy without telling relatives or neighbours, suffering in silence, because that's seen as less shameful. Silence also shrouds mental health issues in South Asian communities. I had an uncle, my father's brother, who suffered from a severe form of mental illness. I was really young, but I did pick up on the fact that there was something wrong, something shameful, something to be kept secret. No one talked about this. My aunts and grandmother would talk behind closed doors every time there was an episode with my uncle. Muffled shouts, banging doors, then all quiet. Maybe it's time to stop the silence. Did you carry on writing your novel when you yes. went through? Yes, yeah. so I was editing. So I'd finished writing it, but I, that whole process of editing, which I found really difficult because after each chemo session, um, I'd be kind of totally, you know, in bed for a week and then recovering from that. So the mind space was not ready to deal with anything other than just managing yes. my side effects managing my mental health and when you have two young kids then you know trying to keep yourself um i i'd say that we were very honest with them so i didn't try to hide anything from them i said to them and this was again another experience that uh when i told my kids the younger one was very excited and she said, oh, so you, you're going to wear wigs, mummy, and can we choose the colors for you? 
And she decided that uh, we're going to have a different color wig for every day of the week. My older one, who was seven, well, for her, she had a friend who uh, was going through leukemia treatment. So a seven-year-old girl in her class. And I think that and the, the mother had come in and talked to the school, uh, to the kids. The nurse had come in and talked. So she already kind of knew and she said to me, oh, is it going to be like how, you know, her friend was going through? She's, she lost her hair, but her hair was coming back. She was going back to school. And she said, are you going to come back to school? Uh, because I used to volunteer in their school. Are you going to come back to school, mommy, after this? And I said, yes. And, and she felt relieved that, you know, she had seen her friend go through it and come back. But then she kind of became very quiet and when we'd go out for walks and things she'd try and pull me back but she couldn't say anything and then finally one day and she became very reticent and quiet and one day I just asked her um, do you have anything to say to me and she she was like hesitating and I and I said to her do you think your mummy's going to die and she said yes and and I said well I don't think so, because uh, look at your friend, she's come back and I'm going through treatment and I will go through treatment and things so that I don't die. So don't be afraid. And I could see that relief in her when she heard that and, and, and that it was mentioned, that death was mentioned and we talked about it. You mentioned the mental health aspect of, of being diagnosed. Yeah. You wanted talk about that a little bit yeah so uh, it was very kind of fluctuating so before just as I was diagnosed um, there was this blank and I did not think much about it um, as I kind of processed what was happening and as I as I went through the treatment and it's very tough this treatment um, I realized that it was hard to take in, you know, small instances, like if I'd see um, a, a young child, say, walking past my window, going to secondary school, I look at that girl and say, am I going to see my kid in secondary school? And that would kind of put me down for the whole day. I just, you know, feel low. But what helped me was that uh, my husband's aunt came from India and she's a cancer survivor herself. And she does a lot of work counseling cancer patients in India. And, and so she came to support me and she stayed for three of my chemo sessions. And then my mother came for the rest of the time. And uh, so I had these two very strong women who stayed with me and I could talk to them and uh, they both his aunt and my mom are very um, open-minded very frank and uh, you know used to very frank open discussions so I think that helped me a lot because I could process all these fears that I had inside me 
and get the right reaction back and they did not mollycoddle me in any way you know they were firm with me when i i was like yes. yeah yeah uh, like okay you've had enough of lying down get up now and go for a walk so yeah that was great and uh, i remember my uh, wig trying session which was so much fun because i went with my husband and my aunt and it was like um i'd gone to this uh, you know beautiful i don't know salon and they were trying on these wigs for me and, and it was a lot of fun but when the hair actually starts falling i was afraid that you know how am i going to react but because again i had read a lot of people saying that that was the toughest part the losing the hair and i thought well why is that the toughest part that's just a very physical thing and i decided that i'm going to celebrate it and not feel bad about losing my hair and it's quite funny because uh, when i was a kid you know in indian culture you have your head shaved and my dad gave me this nickname tux which is short for taklu which is bald so he called me that all his life all my life even you know as a grown up he'd call me tux and and i would and i had a little laugh and he had died a few years before my diagnosis and i thought well he would you know laugh and say uh, well i was right that you know all i along. called you uh, tux all along and here you are and and so i thought no i'm going to embrace this look and i think it was really liberating i'm not a very fashionable person but i think that my chemo period i was very fashionable so i had oh, my bold look with makeup and nice clothes and my husband would present me with um, i don't know handbags and and shoes every chemo session he'd come you know and give me a little gift and i'd sport my chemo bag and hat and yeah and i'm back to you know being my old self now but i think that was my heyday of being fashionable and i really enjoyed it that's yeah. wonderful that's so heartwarming that's absolutely wonderful has anything else in your life or your mindset or the way you view the world changed because of the cancer absolutely yeah um i feel that i'm more open about my feelings i think one of the most important things as well for me has been giving myself the me time or the self care which before i was always a mother a wife a daughter a sister a friend but i was never me and now i have decided that no i need and in indian culture or south asian culture the women are always you know you have to sacrifice and and if you do something for yourself you're kind of termed as oh she's very selfish and uh, the normal is doing for other people as well yes and i thought well no uh, if i need to make say my family happy i've got to be happy and and do things that i always wanted to do so i have taken embrace that and i don't feel guilty say if i want to sit and the whole day and watch tv well if i want to i can growing up i always saw women doing things for other people never anything for themselves a good woman was someone 
who put everyone else ahead of herself. Someone who looked after the needs of other people. Whether it was my mother or my aunties or my grandmother, they cooked and fed everyone. They ate last. The men and the children got the best meals, the tastiest drinks, the luxury of leisure. Never them. They woke up the earliest. They were the last to go to bed. I grew up being taught that it was selfish to put my needs first, that making other people happy would make me happy. That sacrifice was the ultimate form of love. So much of this narrative is now changing in South Asian culture, and this makes me so happy. Yeah, it's changed. It's made me feel more empathy towards people. There is, you know, physically, if people look fine, they may not be fine and not be so quick to judge, oh, why are they doing this? Because there must be something behind them. So that's important as well. And and just finding some, you know, lightness behind because um, there's constantly, it, it's been 2015, so five years, I've just been signed off by the NHS, which was scary as hell as well. When the oncologist said to me, oh, well, five years and you're, you've survived and, you're, you know, we're going to get you off our list. I was like, no, please don't. And she laughed and she said, everybody does that. But seriously, you're OK. Yeah, so it, it's hard to process it. But I think um, accepting uh, death and talking to it about it uh, with my children uh, so we're very open and, and you know, even uh, two days ago we, we were talking about stuff and, and they asked me questions and it was a very sweet one when, when they were still little, my older daughter, I think she's the one who at that time was thinking and processing and, and she said to me, mummy, when you die, what would you like me to do with you? Do you want because it seems her dad said to her that he wants a sea burial because he was in the merchant navy so he's a sailor what do you want and I said to her well if you just you know take my ashes and bury it at the bottom of the garden that would be nice she was like okay just by the cherry tree and I said yeah we've moved though so it's good I'm not at the bottom of somebody's garden now. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, they, they but, talk about it. But having those conversations mm. is, is the key, I think. Yeah. And so few of us do that. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's absolutely critical. So um, you went from there to your book of short stories, mm-hmm. which I have read, which is brilliant. They're like little gems of stories. It's, it's, it's beautifully written. Thank you. How did that come about? So the short stories, I've been writing um, them over the past 15 years, to be honest. So so they, I just compiled them and wrote a couple of new ones. Uh, but it was always, uh, I love writing short stories. And that, to me, was so great to see them together in a book which which was very fulfilling and um, 
and and yeah and it's each of them you know i have like the back story to each of the stories and i remember oh i wrote this during this time or when i was going through this which the readers might not get but for me it's really special to read each story and remember the period of my life that i wrote them so yeah and you were also a creative writing tutor with um other cancer survivors i read about one of the projects you're on I thought that was very interesting yeah so that was uh, like I mentioned earlier the mustard tree in Plymouth um, was a cancer support center at uh, the hospital uh, a Macmillan cancer support center and uh, so they invited lots of people to come and and do uh, you know work to help patients and their families as well so it was not just for cancer patients so my family have gone there and uh, used their spaces as well uh, so I did a, a writing session with uh, cancer patients so I'd go in and then we'd do some writing and uh, and it was very um, I think important for them to be writing and it was good for both you know both sides I met a lot of people that way and we're still friends. So so in many ways it was great that uh, we, and, and writing, especially in those difficult times of your life, um, can be very tough because you're opening up all these feelings and, um, and, and people were quite thankful that they had that opportunity, that space, that quiet, safe place to do that and we didn't have to share what we had written so uh, yeah it was it was great it's probably really cathartic mm. to do that and for you as well yes. to be having experienced it yourself then to kind of go and help people do yeah. that I think that's yeah really quite powerful um so you are also a creative writing tutor yes at at Winchester University so and uh, that is also kind of linked to breast cancer, I've got to thank, because um, we were moving to Winchester just after I finished my treatment and I'd written this uh, memoir piece. Um, and Winchester had a writer's festival where they had lots of competitions, so I sent it to the memoir competition and it won the first prize. So um, I went to collect my prize and I said, well, I've just moved to Winchester and is there anything here that I could do at the university? And they offered me uh, to teach on their MA course. And, and yeah, so I've got my breast cancer <laughs> memoir to thank <laughs> for that. Job. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you for for letting me share my experiences with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in this episode, please head to the show notes where I've listed some information about organizations which can offer help and support. I'm Sangeeta Belai. Thank you for listening to the Masala Podcast, a Spotify original. Masala Podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras. What's that all about? Soul Sutras is a network for South Asian women, a safe space to tell our stories, 
a place to reclaim our bodies, to tackle taboos within our culture, to be exactly who we want to be. Get in touch and tell me your stories about your taboos. Check out my website, soulsultras.co.uk or get in touch via email at soulsultras.co.uk. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Hannah Walker-Brown, opening music by Sunny Robertson,